Welcome, welcome, welcome to all of Christian Israel and, of course, white separatists and all those people who understand that we, the Caucasian people, are, in fact, the Israel of Yahweh. And the Bible is our property. It does not belong to the Jews. The Jews are Edomites, Canaanites, and Khazars, most of whom never set foot in Palestine. The vast majority of Jews today, especially the Ashkenazim, never set foot in Palestine, never had an ancestor set foot in Palestine. And the Sephardic Jews are nothing but Edomites who were the enemies of Israel throughout the entire history of Israel, including today from Genesis 3.15 on, the enmity between the two seeds has existed, will not be resolved until the second coming. All right, so that that's the Bible in, in brief. <laughs> what more do I need to say, right? That's all. Uh, if I wrote a book about the Bible, I think I'd just summarize it right there. The two seeds of Genesis 3.15 and the working out the antagonism between those two bloodlines is the prime subject matter of the Bible. Don't let anybody tell you different. And of course, we have all kinds of shades of Protestants, Catholics, and you name it, uh, disagreements about the true meaning of the Bible. But the truth of the Bible has been maintained by the Christian identity movement. It's always been about the animosity between those two seed lines, identifying those two seed lines in the world today, and the havoc created by the bad guys. Obviously, the Jews, the children of the devil, the fallen angels, the Nephilim, and their offspring, the seed line of Cain. Well, folks, this is exciting stuff. I mean, uh, I think two seed line makes the Bible a very entertaining and dynamic book. All the other versions are just fluff, fluff pieces. The other denominations are just fluff and dogma, having no historical context whatsoever. So our context is, is historical. Who was the father of Cain? It was not Adam. It was Nachash, that fallen angel critter that uh, is called Gadrel in the book of Enoch. Enoch seduced, I mean, Gadrel seduced Eve is exactly how it's put in the book of Enoch. And uh, it, it, sh- it shines through, their, their, their dark light shines through them as Lucifer's dark light shined through him, that that evil angel, that fallen angel. So anyway, uh, today we're going to continue our series. Uh, Hello, Bavarian Man, Swamp Fox, and uh, Kim Smith, etc. Thanks for being in the chat room. We're going to be discussing the Geneva Bible, because uh, this is part of our series on the 400th anniversary of the landing of the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock on November 11th, 1620. So that date is coming uh, up, well, actually right after the election. 
So we've got a very uh, important uh, month coming up between now and then. They set sail, the Pilgrims set sail from uh, Britain. Actually, was, uh, I can't remember now if they took sail from England or from Holland. But it was September 16th. So And then they landed uh, a month later in um, Plymouth Rock, November 11th. So uh, I'm pretty sure I got all those dates correct. But uh, we're not going to be discussing the, those, uh, the actual voyage. We'll do that on another occasion. Today we're going to be discussing the, the reason why the Geneva Bible was created. And it's a very interesting story and it involves persecution. America is a, a nation... The founding of America was all about religious persecution and the attempt of right-thinking, independent-thinking Christians of the white, you know, the white race, trying to get away from persecution, both Catholic persecution and Anglican persecution. By the way, the Boer people left left Europe for the exact same reason, but they wound up settling in the south of Africa instead of America. But it was the same exact reason the Boer people were trying to get away from tyrants of both the Anglican or so-called reformed Protestant movement, because the Protestant movement, although it started out well with uh, Martin Luther, was ultimately taken over by Calvin, and Calvin was just as much as a brute as any Catholic ever was, and I think we talked about that uh, with Pastor um, Pastor uh, Martin's a couple of weekends ago. So we were down last week because we... Uh, I was at a conference in Missouri, which went very well. It was uh, a very a significant conference because two seed liners and non-seed liners were coming together in peace, love, unity, and uh, a good time was had by all. So I think the the breach between the seed liners and the non-seed liners in the Christian identity movement is uh, beginning to fade away. And uh, that's one of the issues that uh, when Pastor Dan Johns and I and several others, 24 elders, in uh, 2003 got together in Ohio, we were all seed liners, and we took an oath that we would endeavor to make peace with the seed liners just by, you know, by persuasion, by exchanging ideas, by discussing the issues, and not casting aspersions on the seed liner, non-seed liners, because in fact they are so close to us in all other details of Scripture that there is no reason why we should allow whether or not Eve was seduced, sexually seduced, in Genesis three fifteen, or Genesis three one, where she encounters Nachash. Uh, to have that be a, an issue that separates the Christian identity movement. And so we dedicated ourselves to making uh, healing that breach. And it still exists somewhat today, but it's not as strong as it used to be. And uh, you know, I was able to talk with uh, uh, several of the pastors who were speaking there, including Dan Gaiman, to Seedliner. Okay, I can't remember the last time a two-seed liner 
was on the same schedule with a bunch of non-seed liners. So that was absolutely wonderful. Thanks to Pastor Ramsey for putting that all together. Very, very successful event. And uh, hope to see more of that in the future. Okay. So anyway, update on that. And also, Paul English has been working frantically to correct the problems we've been having uh, on Eurofolk Radio. So we were also down. But that's finally been resolved. And all the programs that we had done that I haven't been able to upload because the website was down, I'm going to do that sometime today and get the entire uh, series of broadcasts that we did for the last couple of weeks up into the archives where they belong. Okay, so that's the update. Let's go to an article entitled The Original Geneva Bible by Roger Nicole. And he says this, Christianity is the religion of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, and of the written word, the Bible. Wherever Christianity has gone, it has developed translations of scripture as a necessity. The promise of Pentecost, where people of various origin, well, they were Israelites from around the Middle East, as prophesied in Genesis 15, where Abraham was told that his descendants would inhabit the entire area from the Tigris and Euphrates River to the River of Egypt. And that's the area that the Israelites inhabited at Pentecost. So these were Israelites. I'm not sure if Mr. Nicole thinks that these people were from other races. Uh, most of the Judeo-Christian teaching is assuming that all the different of all different people of all races were present at Pentecost, and that the Bible was written to people of all races. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. The Bible is written to one seed line, the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant people, and no one else. This is the major problem that we have with Judeo-Christianity and the modern Christianity as it exists. It has been thoroughly Judaized and universalized, totally departing from the true words of Scripture, which all of identity understand is written to one people exclusively, namely us, the Caucasian Israelites of the world. Okay, so... Now, even within the Christian identity movement, we have differences of opinion about this and that. In fact, I would say that there are many, as many interpretations of Scripture as there are Israelites. But nevertheless, we come together, and by the way, when I was sitting at my table selling books and stuff and making free literature available to the participants, Several people sat down next to me asking me questions about you know my interpretation of the scriptures, and it was all done in a very you know uh, friendly way, with uh, even many non-seedlines. In fact, one lady came up and asked you know well what is Genesis one and two about? Is it chronological? I said it's absolutely chronological because Genesis one is about the creation of the species. And Yahweh says very clearly, I, after that, after creating these species, I am done creating. In Genesis chapter 2, it is forming. In fact, it just shifts to the man, Adam, and the woman, Eve, as individuals, and not as a species 
male and female, he created them, plural, Genesis chapter 1. So even with an identity, there is dispute as to the proper interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. And that lady was very thankful to me for explaining it. It's, it's all in the words. Bara means create. Yatsar means form. Yahweh is done creating in Genesis chapter 1, period. Okay? And I'm going to be quoting, actually, from the Geneva Bible, uh, the notations in the Bible produced in Geneva, which uh, help to explain, it's kind of like the, uh, uh, oh, I forget the name of the uh, annotated Bible. Many annotated Bibles have been produced in the modern era. And uh, these uh, help to explain, but the King James, as I pointed out last Friday, was intended to do away with the Geneva Bible. Because, why? Because the authors of the Geneva Bible did not believe that the king had absolute rule over the Christian world. That he had to obey Yahweh's laws as well. And King James was opposed to that. He wanted to be an absolute dictator. And that's why the Geneva Bible was uh, effectively quashed by the King James Version, all right? So, but uh, we're very happy that the Geneva Bible has been retained and it's continuing to be published. I will be quoting from some of the notes in the Geneva Bible later on in today's show. So anyway, uh, here again, uh, our view of the scriptures is that it is written only to a select group of people, namely the Adamites, the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These words, the covenants were made with us and no other people, and that these covenants cannot be extended to any other religion, any other race, any other whatever. It is exclusive. It's a contract between Yahweh, our God and Father, and his son, Yahshua Messiah, with us, the covenant people, the people named in the contract. So the far, party of the first part, Yahweh, party of the second part, us, the Christian Israelite people, and nobody else. It only pertains to us, and how we respond to Yahweh's word will determine to the extent to which we have dominion over the rest of the world. And when our people were obedient to the best of their ability, the European Christian Israelites. We became the most powerful people on the face of the earth, having, as prophesied in the scriptures, possessing the gates of our enemies, and having great navies and armies, and having tremendous technology, thus being a blessing to the world. The blessings of our inventiveness have been shared with the entire world. So the rest of the world should be thankful that we are here because of the blessings that they have received through us. But, of course, the Jews have taken the, these scriptures, pretended they belong to them, and uh, you know they haven't blessed the world in any way <laughs> at all. right? So it's really obvious who has blessed the world. It's the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Caucasian people, certainly not the Jews who have given us nothing but war and debt. War and debt. So... This is the legacy of our people, the true Israelites of the world. So, continuing, 
you know, dispensing with uh, Roger Nicole's suggestion that uh, this is a universalistic book, okay, the promise of Pentecost, he says, where people of various origin, untrue, they're all Israelites, heard of the wonders of God in their own tongues, Acts 2.11, has been fulfilled and continues to be increasingly fulfilled in the process of Bible translation. The whole Bible, or portions thereof, is now available in print in more than 2,000 languages. And, of course... The Bible predicts that Israel will have a new tongue or a new language, and that, of course, is English. In the British Isles, turbulent times accompanied the work of translating the scriptures. But the first written translation of the whole Bible was made under the influence of John Wycliffe, 1330-1384. Even though it had to be copied by hand, and in spite of a prohibition against English translations, there are still some 200 manuscripts of it extant. That's fantastic. I'd like to see one of those. The first published text was William Tyndale's translation of the New Testament, 1526, based on the Greek and Hebrew texts in Worms, Germany. He had completed the translation of the Pentateuch, Jonah, Joshua, to Second Chronicles, before being martyred in 1536. So this is dangerous business taking it upon yourself to translate the Bible. And we have great gratitude for Pastor Stephen Anderson, who is still in the nursing home uh, doing better. The last update I got, he was doing better, regaining feeling in his left side. He has translated directly from the Hebrew into English the Old Testament, the first time this was done since the days of John Wycliffe. I had assumed, uh, I'm sorry, uh, William Tyndale. I had assumed Wycliffe had translated from the original Hebrew, but it turns out he translated it from the, uh, the Latin version, the Vulgate. So the first direct translation uh, from the Hebrew into the English was William Tyndale. Okay, so, and uh, of course, uh, Martin Luther did the job as well, and there were several uh, other uh, translators who were not as influenced by the Masoretes as the King James translation is. That's another defect of the King James translation, relied on the Masoretic text rather than the Septuagint. The Septuagint was produced by Israelites of the house of Judah. The Masoretic text was produced by Jews, Talmudic Jews. So that's why they eliminated the name of Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, and replaced it with L-O-R-D, okay? Many reasons why we want to have a really good translation of Scripture. And up to this point in time, I have always preferred the Jerusalem Bible because it retains the name of Yahweh. It, it, it translates the words in Hebrew and, and uh, Greek that actually mean race. So you will see the word race in the Jerusalem Bible, where you will not, not see it in virtually any other Bible. Okay, So even though the definition of the Greek word ethnos is race, comma, nation, you will not see the word race in virtually any Bible. This is political, folks. This is political editing. And that's why we in the Christian Identity Movement 
are always seeking the best translation and therefore having to create our own when necessary. Okay. Just as the pilgrims did. See, we share a lot of the uh, merits of the pilgrims because we wanted a a version, a translation of the scriptures that wasn't politically correct, <laughs> all right? We want it to be biblically correct and honest translation without churchified dogma included. And that virtually every Bible out there has all kinds of churchified dogma included. And the translation of specific words is the easiest way to falsify a translation. Continuing, in the British Isles, uh, uh, turbulent times accompanied the work of translating scripture. It even does today. So when, uh, when Tyndale was martyred in 1536 for daring to translate the Bible against the wishes of the Anglican Church, and I'm sure the Catholics didn't like it either, then Miles Coverdale, encouraged by Archbishop Cramner, and Secretary Thomas Cromwell undertook to translate the whole Bible from the Vulgate, Latin, with the help of certain other translators in Latin or German and of Tyndale's own version. This was published in 1535 in Germany. So it turns out that Germany was one of the major places of publication because uh, there were, how should I put it, lords, Uh, rulers of German uh, fiefdoms that sympathized with the correct translation that had turned against Catholicism and were open-minded and free thinkers and willing to consider better translations because the the Catholic Church had forbade the translation of the Bible into anything but Latin because they wanted to have a monopoly on publication of Scripture. So this ongoing resentment by Christians in uh, the the way in which the Bible is presented to us, in fact, it wasn't made available to the average Christian Israelite until the you know invention of the printing press and small versions, which you know peop- more people could afford to have. And obviously, it would cost a lot of money to have a handwritten copy of Scripture. And of course, that would be loaded with, with churchified dogma. So, when the Gutenberg Bible finally became available, it uh, presented the Bible to the average Christian, which was a great step forward in Bible understanding. Now, the average lay Christian could read the scriptures and determine for himself or herself whether the churches were living up to the you know the bible's word and of course it was very bitter it was a very bitter pill for the average christian to find out that their leaders had been lying to them about the true meaning of scripture so this the publication of the bible and having a good version of the bible is paramount for Christian Israel. So, but now we're talking about the Geneva Bible as a major step forward in a good translation, and uh, the the driving force of the Pilgrims coming to America. It wasn't the King James Bible; 
It was the Geneva Bible that the pilgrims carried with them to America on November 11, 1620. When Mary Tudor ascended the British throne in 1553, she did her utmost to restore the Roman Catholic faith. Little did she realize that her anti-Protestant stance would indirectly foster the production of the most important 16th century Bible, the Geneva Bible, precipitated by the exile of a number of the influential Protestant leaders to Geneva. Notable among these were John Knox and William Whittingham. After establishing an English church in 1555, the refugees agreed that the most significant work they could do was to prepare and publish a new English translation, unauthorized by the Anglican Church, by the way, of the whole Bible, made in such a way that it would have a maximum accessibility to the common people of Britain. Whittingham, so it's amazing that this had to be done in Geneva, Switzerland, because it was not tolerated in England, and King James did not tolerate it either. And he was supposedly a Protestant. Whittingham was an excellent scholar in Greek, and Anthony Gilby and Christopher Goodman in Hebrew. Furthermore, there were at at that time in Geneva a number of gifted scholars and printers. So, in other words, Mary Tudor inadvertently drove significant scholars and printers from Britain to Geneva. And apparently, because Geneva was uh, like an open-minded church, except for the existence of John Calvin in their midst, uh, they... I don't think Calvin really had much to do with the Geneva Bible. This is because he wasn't British. The Geneva Bible was a product product of expatriate English who settled in Geneva. Although he tried to take credit for it, it appears, but uh, it wasn't his business. We'll find out more about that as we go along. The English refugees. Oh, and that's that's correct. They are refugees. The pilgrims who came to America were refugees. They didn't come here willingly. They had they were leaving persecution. They were fleeing from persecution. So America is a nation of religious Christian refugees, not immigrants of every stripe. So these uh, the English refugees made ample use of these resources. And Whittingham and his associates labored day and night to perform the task of preparing an English translation of the whole Bible. Earlier editions of the Bible had marginal notes, but the Geneva Bible accommodated them in a much greater proportion. Written in a Puritanic spirit, there was language that angered the royal family and some of the bishops of the Anglican Church who sought to impede the distribution and use of this Bible. Okay? So, why? Because the Anglican Church dominated the religious life of the British people, and they wanted to keep it that way. On June 10, 1557, the New Testament appeared as follows, The New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ conferred diligently with the Greek and best approved translations, with the arguments as well before the chapters as for every book and epistle, also diversities of readings, and most profitable annotations of all hard places, whereunto is added a copious table, 
at Geneva, printed by Conrad Battius, M.D. Uh, L. Oh, okay, that, that's the date. Sorry. So what are the fifteen sixty-seven? Uh, I didn't have a chance to de- decipher the Roman numerals here. Mary Tudor died on November seventeenth, fifteen fifty-eight. Her successor, Queen Elizabeth was favorable to the Reformation initiated by her father, Henry VIII. Many of those who were exiles under Mary hastened to return to the British Isles. Whittingham, however, and some of his associates remained in Geneva until 1560 to finish the publication of their edition of the Bible. Inasmuch as the translation of the Book of Psalms was completed, the Geneva group decided to publish it separately and to dedicate this work to Elizabeth. They probably to gain uh, safety <laughs> with Elizabeth upon their return. Okay, well, let's uh, let's bow to Queen Elizabeth, dedicate it to her, etc., etc., to get in her good graces. But uh, there couldn't have been a much worse queen for the Bible than Mary Tudor. They, in fact, this is exactly what they say in the next sentence. They prefixed a flowery letter to her, declaring that her accession to the throne was a special blessing from God. They established a parallel between her and King David, in that both were enthroned after years of life-threatening persecutions. The queen was admonished to cling to the Lord and to his word, even as David did. An epistle to the reader was placed at the end. After the publication of the Psalms in 1559, Whittingham and his associates labored diligently to bring to completion this momentous work. When one holds in his hands the large volume, one cannot fail to be impressed by the gigantic task involved in translating, annotating, printing, proofreading, and binding this book, all without computers. The marginal annotations, written in exceedingly small type, are very unevenly distributed, relatively scanty in the Pentateuch and in the historical books of the Old Testament, and very full in Job, Psalms, and the Prophets, as well as some epistles and revelation. The New Testament was also published separately in 1560. The desire to make God's word available to English-speaking peoples is apparent, Those who could not afford to buy the whole Bible might at least purchase the New Testament. Between 1560 and 1644, there were more than 140 editions of the Geneva Bible. In 1599 alone, 10 editions appeared. The first Geneva Bible to be printed in Britain was published in London by Christopher Berkes, B-E-R-K-E-S, in 1575. The first printing in Scotland appeared also in 1575. So it's it's evident that the producers of the Geneva Bible were determined to get it right and therefore produced all these different editions. By the way, the Scriptures, which is Pastor Steve's favorite Bible, uh, those publishers are open to suggestions, translational suggestions, where it's obvious that the translations are still bad and need to be corrected. And so the Scripture Editing Committee is open to suggestions, and Pastor Steve has actually done so on several occasions. And the 
scriptures have taken his suggestions and changed the translation, corrected the translation. So that's good that you have an open-minded, you know, the, the, the purpose here is to get the translation right, not to pr- produce more dogma, which is the main subject of virtually every other Bible on the planet. The, the various denominations are only interested in promoting their own dogma. Continuing here, the Genevan exiles labored with great earnestness for five years in order to give their, to their country a Bible that would reflect the best scholarship and yet be accessible even to those with moderate financial means. Of course, all this is done challenging the Anglican Church, challenging the Catholic Church, which is, is the motivation that the Boer people had. They didn't want either one of those. They didn't want the Protestant version. They didn't want the Catholic version. Uh, but they, the Boers never produced a translation of their own. They were a separate group entirely that wound up going to South Africa. Challenged by others in Geneva who were publishing Bibles or New Testaments in Latin, Italian, French, Spanish, and Greek, and by the success of the German Bibles, Luther in 1534 and Zwingli, 1527-1529, to 1529, they worked untiringly to produce the Geneva Bible in 1560. Thereafter, for more than 80 years, it dominated the field, surpassing greatly the official Bishop's Bible and giving great incentive to King James I. Why? Well, because he was the leader of the Anglican Church, a cruel tyrant. You can't uh, say he was a good king. And he, he wanted the Anglican version to dominate over the Geneva Bible because the Geneva Bible had taken the place of popularity of the Bishop's Bible, which the, the Anglican Church was then using. The Genevan marginal notes did not sit well with him. I can, and so he provided the funds and assembled the scholars for preparation of the magnificent edition in 1611 of a new authorized version known as the King James Version. So this author admits that the Geneva Bible was the reason why the King James Bible was produced. It was because King James did not like the fact that the Geneva scholars suggested that a king must obey Yahweh's laws. The divine right of kings was King James' primary motivation for having the authorized version produced because he did not like the fact that he wouldn't be considered a a, a divine right king if he did not, in fact, obey Yahweh's laws. And so that's what the Geneva Bible said, and he didn't like it. The Geneva marginal notes did not sit well with him. That's the reason why he produced the King James Bible. That's the main reason, if not the only reason. Even so, it took many years for the latter to catch up with the production of the Geneva Bible, And it must be noted that at many places in the 1611 translation was influenced by the work of the exiles. Yes, those free thinkers, Christians who wanted to produce a good translation and not produced by church Greek and church Hebrew. Okay, the Geneva Bible was the Bible of Shakespeare. It was the Bible of the Puritans. 
It was the Bible carried on their ships by the Jamestown settlers, 1607, and the Plymouth Pilgrims, 1620. So, do you realize now how important a Geneva Bible is? It was the Bible of our people until King James supplanted it with the authorized version. And it still is better, in my opinion, than the authorized version. Okay, so continuing... Harvard University treasures the copy that Governor Bradford brought with him on the Mayflower. It's still there. Thanks for telling me about that, Swamp Fox. Nothing else that the exiles could have done would possibly approximate the boon to Britain and the influence in the world which the Genevan Bible turned out to be. Okay. So, that's the significance of the Geneva Bible and why we should actually i possess a copy i'll be quoting it uh, from it uh, during the course of this program today i'm going to switch now to uh, a website entitled www.tindale.org and the article here and i already put the link in the chat room from the geneva tindale conference papers the Geneva English Bible, The Shocking Truth, by David Danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L. A lecture given at the Geneva Tyndale Conference in October 2001. Professor Danielle's pioneering material on the Geneva Bibles will appear in greater detail in his forthcoming book, The Bible in English, Its History and Influence. I guess that was published in 2003. So, uh, this uh, from the, the Geneva Tyndale Society. These people are carrying on the work and the importance of the Tyndale, or I'm sorry, the Geneva Bible. So 1557 was the date of the publication. Thank you, Bavaria man. And uh, yes, Swamp Fox says King James wanted to control the Bible as much as. TPTB want to control the internet today, right? The the, the uh, TPTB probably is a oblique reference to the Jews, <laughs> right? So, and uh, good day, Sussex man. Glad to see you in the chat room. Well, I take a sip of my coffee. See, if we hadn't had the American Revolution, I'd be drinking tea. Let's continue now with this study of the Geneva Bible. The Geneva New Testament, 1557. After the Great Bible of 1539, the next newly prepared English New Testament was printed in Geneva in June 1557. It marked both a great contrast to the Great Bible, and though at first it might not seem so today, a long stride forward. For one thing, it is small and octavo octavo for the hand or pocket roughly the size of a prayer book in a church pew as editions of the new testament had been since tyndale's and coverdale's over 20 years before that made a contrast to henry viii's original huge folio great bible or matthew's before that but the contrast was not only in the pleasing small size it is also handsome for the first time, an English Bible text was printed not in heavy Gothic black letter in Northern Europe by printers in Antwerp or London, 
but in Switzerland by Conrad Badius. B-A-D-I-U-S. First time I've heard that name. Conrad Badius, the son of the master printer of Paris, in a clean, clear Roman, a French style, also influenced by the Italian printers, trained in the more refined humanist manner, whatever that means. Its pages are uncluttered, the text ruled off with red lines with wide margins at the sides, top, and bottom, giving an attractive sense of space. The paper shows signs of having been carefully selected. Some surviving copies remain unusually fresh. One of the two copies in the Bodleian Library, Oxford, and the copy in Lambeth Palace Library, have paper of still remarkable whiteness, as no doubt do others. The neat notes on an average of two per page are in the outer margins in Roman, with occasional references to in an English Bible, uh, occasional italic. The type on this article is very small. Uh, on inside margins, the thickest cluster of marginal notes accompanies the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Some pages, even of the Epistle to the Romans, have no notes at all. Also, for the first time in an English Bible, while the traditional markers A, B, C, and so on are retained in the margins, the text is divided into numbered verses, following the Greek New Testament by Stephanus, made in Geneva in 1551. Ultimately, from Pagninus' edition of the Vulgate, made at Lyon in 1527. Though, also for the first time in this 1557 New Testament, each verse starts with a fresh line with its number, whether it is the beginning of a new sentence or not. This, again, was new for the first time outside Latin or Greek. Again, for the first time in an English Bible, words not in the Greek, thought to be necessary additions for English clarity, are in italic, and the King James retains that tradition that words not in the original Hebrew or Greek are italicized so that the reader knows that these words were not in the original languages. The title page is another contrast to that of the Great Bible. Instead of announcing its authority by declaring it to be the result of the, quote, diligent study of diverse excellent learned men, expert in the tongues, unquote, we must assume they're being honest with us when they say that, it states, quote, the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ conferred diligently with the Greek and best approved translations, with the arguments as well before the chapters as for every book and epistle, also diversities of readings, and most profitable annotations of all hard places, whereunto is added a copious table. So in other words, they're saying, well, this is for the reader giving different perspectives, different translations, where it says also diversities of readings, because there, let the reader decide. Let the reader decide which version sounds best. We can also, we can argue points of translation later. Let's get this information out there. This is the obvious motivation of the Geneva translators, to get it right. Continuing, in other words, critical study is invited. How about that? You don't get that from the King James only crowd or from the Vulgate crowd. Critical study 
is invited. Underline that sentence. Further, the title page does not announce absolute royal power, although who can't have that, as in the Great Bible, in the later Bishop's Bibles, and in the first KJV, with massive constructions that block the entrance of the reader. Well, the original KJV had King James's instructions to the translation committee, a, a bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, because he wanted to retain his divine right of kings, whether he obeyed Yahweh's laws or not. It will be noticed that there are no names, unlike the central panel of KJV, where King James and Robert Barker are prominent. Here, inviting the reader in is a small, simple engraving in the middle of the page. It is in the manner of an emblem, showing time-leading truth, up out of a cavern, all right? Yes, the Bible has been sitting in a dark cavern for centuries, put there by the Roman Catholic Church. Modern eyes are used to used to 16th century Bible title pages, being architecturally organized for essential weight with pillars and statues. Yeah, I mean, if you got one of those big Bibles, it has all that stuff. Uh, the crowded title page of Henry VIII's Great Bible is dominated by the king. God above him has to squeeze to get in, right? And his now, what what was Henry VIII's primary motivation for ditching the Catholic Church? The Pope would not give him a divorce. He he wanted to divorce the, the lady who wouldn't give him a son or was incapable of giving him a son. And he said, heck with the Catholic Church, I want a son. And I'm doing what I have to to get a son. So anyway, that was Henry VIII's motivation. It wasn't religious in any way. And neither is King James' motivation religious in any way. Both of them wanted to maintain their power over their their nations. That's basically all there is to it. Okay? So, a uh, great Bible, all right? So the, the, it's, it's evident from the way these Bibles are produced, Mr. Daniel is saying, that the power of the king and, of course, the Anglican church predominate those original British productions. Okay, so let's continue. Okay, so, ver, uh, so God had to get, be squeezed in as a smaller figure above the portrait of Henry VIII. And in, in his largesse in giving in Latin note the verbum dei to the inattentive people below. The title page of the King James Version of 1611 is essentially an unbroken wall forbidding entrance, dominated partly by two judgmental saints, Peter and Paul, so implying that Peter and Paul, the spirit of Peter and Paul, predominate in that production, which I would totally deny. But above all, by the names of the king, James I, and the printer, Robert Barker. For printers making an English New Testament in the 1550s, the new style for this 1557 New Testament spoke strongly. This can be demonstrated. That very device was the inspiration for a pageant held in Cheapside, at the celebration of Elizabeth's succession. On 14 February 1558, 
the queen proceeded to place between two hills where there had been contrived a cave with a door and a lock. At her approach, to, uh, her approach an old man, scythe in hand, and having wings artificially made, was seen to come forth. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, some actor wearing an angel's wings came out of the out of the door. This is funny, but man, you, you can see this was a major production, very loaded with theatrics. He was leading quote a person of lesser stature than himself, which was finely and well apparelled, all clad in white silk, and directly over her head was set her name and title in Latin and English. Temporis Philia, the daughter of time, which two so appointed went forward toward the south side of the pageant, and on her breast was written her proper name, which was Veritas Truth, who held a book in her hand upon which was written ver verbum Veritas, the word of truth. Very nice, nice pageant, pageantry, Hollywood style. After recitation by a small child, he reached the book to the queen, who thereupon kissed it, held it aloft for all to see, and so laid it upon her breast with great thanks to the city therefore. The queen said that she would often read over that book. One might have difficulty thinking of the slightly built queen clutching a massive folio <laughs> that weighed a half a ton, or thick quarto, and at the same time retaining her dignity. <laughs> this is funny. It is easy to contemplate that little 1557 New Testament volume as it was being laid upon her breast. Very good. So, that volume, which was gratefully and uh, you know, dedicated to Queen Elizabeth, it's more than likely, the author is saying, that that's the version of the Bible she laid upon her breast, and not that half-ton volume that was produced by the bishops or by Henry VIII. So, uh, oh, hold on. A an ad popped up right in the middle of my text here. Let me scoot along the text here. So this was quite a pageant. I had no idea. This is good stuff, folks. I love it. All right. So 1557 and Geneva were both the time and the place for a new, for new English translation. For 20 years, revisions of Olivetan's French New Testament had been published in Geneva, Okay, so the tradition of publishing new Bibles in Geneva was well set in different languages already. and uh, But uh, I think Luther's version was published in Germany. Revised by Calvin and Genevan ministers, the latest in 1556. Italian exiles there printed a revised Italian New Testament in 1555, on the way to a whole Bible. So a tradition had already been established in Geneva of religious refugees going there to print their versions or develop their versions. So Italians, French, Germans, and British all went to Geneva to publish Bibles in their respective languages. A revised New Testament in Spanish 
was printed there in 1556. The last new English Bible had been made in England 18 years before, and that was Coverdale's revision of his work four years before that, nearly a quarter century distant. Heading, the first Geneva translators. After the coronation of Queen Mary on 19 July 1553, the great movement of Protestants to the continent in January and February 1554 happened before the most serious persecution got underway. The first burning of John Rogers, maker of Matthew's Bible, took place on 4 February 1555. That's why Mary earned the title Bloody Mary. In the 18 months before that martyrdom, the migration was carefully organized. The dangers in England were real. The restrictions of Protestants began within a few days of Mary's accession. Before Mary died in November 1558, over 300 Protestants had been burned alive in England. She guess she was trying to, well, she had restored the Catholic Church to England, didn't she? Continuing the Catholic tradition of martyring, quote-unquote, heretics. The word of preparation of this New Testament was anonymous. Or, I'm sorry, the work of preparation of this New Testament was anonymous. Well, they didn't want to, you know, because Queen Mary could have sent agents to Geneva to find them and kill them. That's probably why it was anonymous, but also I suspect there was a level of humility in the production that you would not find in the King James Bible or any Bible produced by the the official churches, the authoritarian churches. So, this was a, a very difficult time for independent thinking Christians. By the way, the Congregationalist movement was also very strong in the early days of America. It was a separate denomination that selected its own bishops, which uh, most of the denominations that came to America did. Only the Anglican Church, I think, was Anglican Church was established in Virginia, had uh, their bishops selected for them by their denomination. And this is what Paul did in establishing congregations, ecclesia, throughout the Middle East, and apparently also in Britain and Spain, that he established congregations from which those congregations selected their leaders, those who were the most accomplished scholars and preachers, and those who obeyed the law to the best of their ability were the leaders that they selected for themselves. Okay, They were not selected by some overarching denomination like the Catholic Church or any other church that, that trains their priests in some foreign city, even foreign country, and then sends them into your neighborhood to teach you the official authorized version of Christianity. No, there is no free thinking allowed in churches established thus. The original churches, such as in Alexandria, Pergamos, etc., those places, although Paul didn't establish the one in Alexandria, that was a long-running Judahite congregation that had their own bishop. So, 
and the Bishop of Rome was a foreboding presence. Never, I don't think there was ever a legitimate church under the direction of the Roman Catholic hierarchy. And it was the Roman Catholic Church that tried to take authority over the existing Israelite congregations in other cities, such as Alexandria, and they they rejected the authority of the Church of Rome. But the Church of Rome established its predominance by military means, okay, and by issuing edicts declaring its authority over the others, all of which was rejected by the other congregations. So that's the true history of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and Peter was not the first bishop of Rome. <laughs> he was never a bishop of Rome. In fact, Peter went east to uh, to Babylon to minister to the Judahites of Parthia. That's where Peter went. All right, so let's continue here. So these people were very much dedicated, and they were anonymous because they had to be. So was the preface, which was less customary. Evidence points to it being a, the single-handed work of William Whittingham, an English gentleman and Oxford scholar. A manuscript, Life of Whittingham, in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, tells of a group of learned men in Geneva meeting to peruse the existing English versions of the New Testament, thus making the first such revising committee in English Bible history. The learned men mentioned were indeed learned, Miles Coverdale, um, Brazenos, and then Christchurch, who had become Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity, Anthony Gilby, Thomas Sampson from Oxford and Cambridge, who went on to be Dean of Christchurch, Oxford. He had most recently been close to the Hebrew scholar Emmanuel Tremelius at Cambridge and Strasbourg. Dr. William Cole, and William Whittingham himself. They were possibly joined in committee by John Knox, and certainly later for the whole Bible by William Ketty, or Kethe, K-E-T-T-E, or K-E-T-H-E, John Barron, John Poulaine, John Bodley, and W. Williams. Knox had been chosen as minister from its first day, by the English-speaking congregation at Geneva, but did not arrive there until September 1556. He left for Scotland in 1557, but returned early in 1558, finally departing in January 1559, having received the freedom of the city of Geneva. If William, so some rather famous names and some names I never heard of before. If William Tyndale had survived and gone to Geneva as a, a Marian exile in 1553, at the age of 59, not an impossibility, he would have found a city humming with Bible activity. In many ways he would have been a very happy man, even more than an Antwerp in his day the northern center of translating and printing scripture. He would have found areas of the city life of Geneva given to scholarship and fine printing, it is estimated that between 1550 and 1600, some 2,500,000 titles were printed in Geneva. Much more, he would have found a new university at the heart of the work. The Academy of Geneva was formally inaugurated on 5 June 1555 with Theodore de Beza, or Beza as its first rector. 
Geneva's new Reformed University, with its new fields of knowledge and study, became rapidly famous for scholarly enterprise, which included the establishment of good texts of classical writers of all kinds, Virgil, Cicero, even Catullus, and translating them, as well as the scriptures, into French, Italian, and Spanish. Tyndale would have been content to be a senior engineer in that powerhouse. By the way, the same is true of the founders of America, very well read in learned Hebrew and Greek. Thomas Jefferson was a renowned scholar in various areas. So, the same type of mentality prevailed here in America as prevailed there in Geneva. So, I'm hoping you're getting an idea of how important the, this, this revolution of critical thinking and the determination to get the translations right, how powerful this was in Geneva in 1555. Most Christians are totally unaware of these things. Certainly the Judeo-Christians couldn't give a rat's behind about what, what happened in Geneva. Most of them are King James only and really have no, uh, you know, no interest in Bible history. They just don't have any interest in Bible history. So continuing. How much the learned men who were in Geneva contributed to the New Testament as opposed to the whole Bible that followed is unclear. There has been persistence in the statement certainly implied in the preface that one man, Whittingham, did it alone. Well, he couldn't possibly have done it alone, not in such a short time. Prefatory matter by Calvin and Whittingham. Now we get into what influence, if any, Calvin had in the Geneva Bible. Not only is the whole work anonymous, but how much Calvin associated himself with this New Testament, if he did at all, is also unclear. He apparently wrote an eight-page introductory epistle, declaring with good epistle to the Romans' force that Christ is the end of the law, an important endorsement of this new work. So apparently he wrote an endorsing uh, opinion about it, Yet, this epistle dedicatory is a translation of a piece written 20 years before. <laughs> oh, okay, so he just wrote something he wrote 20 years previously. Now he used, oh, I could use this to endorse the Geneva Bible. So, apparently, his influence on the Bible and his active role was virtually zero, according to Mr. Daniel. But he was virtual ruler of Geneva at the time, it would have been very difficult. Uh, Calvin had certain individuals he he picked out for persecution uh, going back to days in his past. So apparently he left the Geneva Translation Committee alone, which is a good thing. Let's continue. So he wrote this uh, dedicatory 20 years earlier and then applied it to the Geneva Translation. And Calvin's second published work, his preference in Latin to the New Testament in Olivetan's Bible in 15, of 1535. The first French Protestant, and by the way, Calvin was a Frenchman, probably a French Jew. His original name is Cauvin or Cohen. And Cauvin is Cohen in French. And uh, it's, it's a given that his parents were Jewish. So what was Calvin's motivation? Probably to redirect 
the Protestant Reformation away from Luther towards Jewish Calvinism. And that's the, my assessment of that. We could probably do some shows about that in the future, demonstrating you know Calvin's uh, Jewish origins. And you know he did say that a little bit of usury is a good thing, which is what you would expect a Jew to say. Anyway, continuing with the subject matter at hand, the so he wrote this epistle Bible in 1535, the first French Protestant Bible. Olivetan was Calvin's cousin. Interesting. The unsigned three-page address, probably by Whittingham, to the reader, mercy and peace through Christ our Savior, echoes Tyndale's obedience of a Christian man in its awareness of opposition to the Bible and of Jesus' parable of the sower at Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. It continues. So, despite Calvin's presence at Geneva during these days, we can see that the motivation of the Geneva Bible began with Tyndale and other independent scholars, many of whom were martyred, because they opposed the dictatorial regimes of the authorities of their day. So we quote from Tyndale's Evidence of a Christian Man, For this cause we see that in the Church of Christ there are three kinds of men. Some are malicious despisers of the word and graces of God, who turn all things into poison. And we sure have a lot of those today and a farther hardening of their hearts. Others do not openly resist and contemn the gospel because they are stroken, as it were, in a trance with the majesty thereof. Okay. <laughs> Yet either they quarrel and cavil, or else deride and mock at whatsoever thing is done for the advancement of the same. Okay, we've got our version of the Bible don't you dare tell us there might be a better version. The third sort are the simple lambs, which partly are already in the fold of Christ, and so hear willingly their shepherd's voice, and partly wandering astray by ignorance, tarry till the time the shepherd find them and bring them unto his flock. To this kind of people, in, the, in this translation, I chiefly had respect, as moved with zeal, counseled by the godly and drawn by occasion, both of the place where God and judgment, which so aboundeth in this city of Geneva, that justly it may be called the patron and mirror of true religion and godly author, risks a boast. Quote, I have endeavored so to profit all, that is, help everyone, thereby, that both the learned and others might be holpen or helped, for to my knowledge I have omitted nothing unexpounded, whereby he that is exercised in the scriptures of God might justly complain of hardness. Okay, so in other words, I have done my best to give this translation to all those serious Christians, Christian Israelites at this point in time, because there were no others but white people in Europe at this time. Indeed, so comprehensive has he been that readers have no need of the commentaries. 
He is rightly proud of his arguments in the summaries of the contents at the head of each book, or of the four Gospels together, made with plainness and brevity, to be understood and remembered, which may serve instead of a commentary to the reader. The idea of such summaries was not new. The page of the first book of Moses, called Genesis, what this book containeth, though only that page. Matthew's Bible had in the preliminary leaves two large pages of the summoned content of all the Holy Scripture. The volume was fresh. The Geneva Bible, 1560. This compact volume in size of moderate quarto, with its excellent text, the numbered verses set out in two columns, had in addition what amounted to an encyclopedia of Bible information. It was very popular and successful indeed, and I will start quoting from my copy, my print copy of the Geneva Bible, after this paragraph. It was very popular and successful in this, having been the people's Bible in the later 16th century and earliest 17th centuries. It was driven out by political and commercial interests from 1611 and forced out of the public view from 1660. It was made an object of horror by the Victorian High Church, which invented for it a myth of unacceptable coloring, not easy to refute as copies were scarce. That shocking truth is still kept alive, as is the notion that Geneva Bibles were popularly time, for which there is no evidence. Now, that criticism is a lie for which there is no evidence, Danielle is telling us. The value of this remarkable volume was reduced to a single schoolchild snigger by referring to it only as the Breaches Bible, because in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are given breaches, as in Wycliffe and Caxton's Golden Legend, incidentally, instead of the KJV's aprons. So, what did, uh, what did Breaches What's the, what's the difference? Okay, so the KJV says aprons or loincloths, which is probably the best translation. Okay, the more straightforward and direct the translation, the better. And not coloring the language with current jargon, which most Bibles actually do. Okay, and, uh, and not coloring it with church Greek and church Hebrew which we we see very uh very astoundingly in the retention of the words such as gentile and translating various words as man from different hebrew words uh, adam should be retained as adam or adam and not changed to man therefore making all the various hebrew words for different types of people different types of uh, races all the same, which the Hebrew Bible absolutely does not do. So very rare, and even the Geneva Bible, they, they couldn't have understood this. They, these people were doing their best to get it right. So I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 1 of my Geneva Bible. Let's see, when was this published? This is a it, it contains reproductions of the original Bible print as was described in this article I'm reading from by Danielle. And uh, let me see, very, very front, because this is 
Okay, the holy scriptures contained in the Old and New Testaments, Tali Lege, Whitehall, West Virginia, United States of America. It doesn't tell. It doesn't say when this edition was published, but uh, its main thrust here is to present the 1599 version of the Geneva Bible. So here we go. One one. And this is introductory material. God telling us what these verses mean that are coming up in Genesis 1. Verse 1, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 3, the light and the darkness. Verse 8, the firmament. Verse 9, he separated the water from the earth. Verse 16, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Verse 21, he created the fish, birds, and beasts. Verse 26, he createth man and giveth him rule over all creatures. Verse 29, and provideth nurture for man and beast. So it's obvious that the Geneva Bible does not get the true meaning of Adam correct. And that's why we're here, to get it right. So let me just read from the commentaries here. So verse 1, 1. Let me read the verse. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And it has a footnote and a commentary, verse 1-1. First of all, and before that any creature was, God made heaven and earth of nothing. Okay, so this is of nothing is the ex nihilo, uh, which is not really sustained by the Bible. The What uh, Paul says is... Yahweh created the universe out of his own being, not out of nothingness. But that's a philosophical debate that need not concern us here. It's commentary on verse 3. As a rude lump and without any creature in it, for the waters covered all, or waste, darkness covered the deep water. So these are introductory notes of clarification, at least the author's opinions, given to the reader, which um, uh, were quite extensive in the Geneva Bible, and apparently this was uh, was g- given the credit for the popularity of this Bible. The, the annotations and comments by the authors were very popular with the readers, because apparently there at this point in time. The meaning of these verses was was not it was never made clear to anybody, okay. So let's see where we have the first Adam. I'm going to comment here on Genesis one verses eleven through twelve, and here's the comments in the Geneva Bible on verses eleven and twelve. So let me read them first. Then God said, "Let the earth bud forth, the bud of the herb, that seedeth seed, the fruitful tree." It is quite different from the King James, which beareth fruit according to his kind. And again, the word his is a substitute for its, because the word its was not uh, in use at this time. So we have what is considered today the masculine pronoun his instead of the neuter pronoun its. In those days, the pronoun his was either neuter or masculine. According to his kind, or its kind is the 
version we prefer today, which has seed in itself upon the earth, and it was so. So we're saying, well, I won't comment. <laughs> I'm always tempted to comment. Anyway, verse 12, And the earth brought forth the bud of the herb, that seedeth seed according to his kind, also the tree that beareth fruit, which has his seed in itself according to his kind, and God saw that it was good. So the commentary here, apparently by Whittingham and the translation committee, so that we see it is the only power of God's word that maketh the earth fruitful, which else naturally is barren. Verse 12, this sentence is so oft repeated to signify that God made all his creatures to serve his glory and to the profit of man, but for sin they were accursed yet to the elect. By Christ they are restored and serve to their wealth. So the commentaries here are designed to provide the reader with the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me jump to Genesis 21, verses 9 through 10. Let's see if we have a commentary. Yeah, we have a commentary in the Geneva Bible on verse 9. Verse 9, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Verse 10, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So the commentary here on verse 9 in the Geneva Bible. He derided God's promise made to Isaac, which the apostle calleth persecution. That is Ishmael. Ishmael derided God's promise. The son of Hagar the Egyptian, which the apostle calleth persecution. This is an excellent commentary. This is a most excellent commentary for the reader, because it connects this passage in the Old Testament with Paul's quotation of it at Galatians 4.29. So now you can see the value of these commentaries. They may not all be perfect, but this helps the reader to connect. These are cross-references. Cross-references between the Old and New Testaments, which are of immense value to any serious student of the scriptures. Just to give you a taste of what's going on here in the Geneva Bible. Uh, also, let me quote uh, Genesis 38. This is the episode of Judah and Tamar, 38:14 through 18. And I will just read them as translated here in the Geneva Bible. Then she, let's see, we only have 10 minutes left. Then she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat down, this is Tamar, playing the whore, and sat down in Peta and Peta Enam, which is by the way to Timnah, because she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. Remember Tamar? was promised several husbands, all of whom failed to provide her with a child. Verse 15, When Judah saw her, he judged her and whore, for she had covered her face. So apparently, 
Uh, <laughs> are all you ladies wearing veils? Okay. Those Muslim ladies wearing veils? That told everybody that you're a whore. And he turned to the way towards her and said, Come, I pray thee, let me lie with thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law by a, a illegal marriage. And she answered, What wilt thou give me for to lie with me, for you to lie with me? Verse 17, Then said he, I will send thee a kid of the goats from the flock. And she said, Well, if thou wilt give me a pledge till thou send it. Okay, so, well, give me uh, some symbol. I'm not just going to take your word for this. Give me some collateral. <laughs> Smart woman. Give me some collateral until you deliver the goat. Okay. There's, there's more imagery. There's more meaning to this than I realized before. Anyway. Then said he, I will send thee a kid of she, uh, she goes from the flock. And she said, give me some collateral. Then he said, what is the pledge that I shall give you? And she answered, thy signet. Your ring. Your royal ring, and thy cloak, and thy staff that is in thine hand. He gave her all three. Can you believe what Judah did here? So he gave it her, and lay by her, and she was with child by him. This proves conclusively that Yahweh is more concerned that the child be of the correct race than whether or not it was born out in or out of wedlock. And the translation it was always by that uh, that, that we're that, that uh, oh, I can't remember the word now. That, that uh, you know born born out of wedlock uh, is uh, the grievous sin. No, the grievous sin is to be born out of your own race to produce hybrid offspring. So let's look at the commentaries here. In Genesis, I can't resist commentating myself. Uh, Genesis uh, eight, I'm sorry, thirty-eight, fourteen. Scanning down here. Okay, so in the bottom we have the commentaries. Verse fourteen. Or in the door of the fountain, or where the two, or where were the two ways? So wherever the it's. T- t- telling us that there was a fountain at this at this place where she sat okay that's apparently the meaning of the name peta enam verse 16 the commentary is god had wonderfully blinded him that he could not know her by her talk well it's questionable how well he knew her would he even recognize her by her the sound of her voice verse 18 which is, and then he said, What is the pledge that I shall give thee of Tyre of thine head? Now, that commentary doesn't make any sense to me, but it probably would have to the average reader uh, in uh, 1599. All right? So, uh, the, this is the value of the Geneva Bible, the commentaries and the cross references are something that every Christian would be interested in uh, if you're a serious student of the Bible. All right, so this is the Bible that the 
pilgrims brought to America, not to King James. So it must be understood that America is a product of this type of open-minded Bible scholarship, which was created by the persecution of Christians by the Roman Catholic Church and by the Anglican Church and other other denominations for whatever reason uh, the whatever denomination we have with the exception of Christian identity there always seems to emerge some uh, high ruler who uh, tries to get rid of any any opposition to his point of view okay that has not happened in Christian identity in Christian identity we still have local congregations headed by pastors either accepted or elected accepted or selected or elected by the local congregation and not imposed upon them by some overarching denomination so i reject all such denominations including the Baptist Church. And what Pastor Ramsey had to say about the way the, the Baptist Church operated really shocked me. Uh, I had, you know, basically, it's run by, the Baptist Church seems to be run, in addition to having their clergy, but by people of wealth and power who are the deacons of these denominations, of these local churches, who have the power to get rid of a pastor if they ch- so if he doesn't meet their determinations okay so and this to me has to be the church of laodicea where instead of selecting people of high scholarship and merit they they want people who teach you know tell us what we want to hear that type of christianity and of course, that is true of most denominations. Tell us what we want to hear, rather than give us some hard truths that we might have to change our minds or opinions about. So, one more uh, item here. The the work of Gen- the Geneva Academy, which I guess still exists. The Academy of Geneva under Biza was based on the model established at Strasbourg, the aim was the specialized one of educating men in large numbers. A learned ministry was always the goal of the reformers in whatever country. The academy began with 162 students, but five years later in 1560, it had 1,500 students. So this gives you an idea of the zeal of Bible scholarship established in those days, a zeal which is still carried on by those of us in the Christian identity movement. I really believe that we are the inheritors of this tradition of Bible scholarship, the desire to get it right, and to discuss the other translations that exist and discuss their their problems and where they get it right, things they get right. So the, the positives and negatives of the various translations are extremely important to us, but our desire to get it right is paramount in our scholarship, in our treatment of the text. So this is something that this tradition was started by the exiles from England that wound up in Geneva, ultimately came to America and created this great nation, the world's first Christian republic.
the world's first Christian and only Christian republic. Though that tradition was started by these Geneva scholars, headed by Whittingham and many others, entered in the tradition of Tyndale and other martyrs. These people were martyred for translating the Bible into English. And guess what, folks? That uh, that anti-biblical tradition still exists today, even in the so-called Judeo-Christian denominations. They do not want to hear the truth. But that's what we're here for. Thanks. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you all next time. Take care. Bye-bye.